everyone. Um, welcome to another episode of The Ballot Box, Elections Around the World, global election coverage from a team of political scientists, hosted by me, Jonathan Parker, in London. Um, me, Chris Terry, in Manchester. Me, Andres Becerer, usually in New York, but sometimes in Mexico. This week, we're back to Latin America. Um, some of you who have been listening along all the time will remember one of these because it's the second round. We're talking about uh, the elections in Peru, um, where the presidential election has just just wrapped up with its second round, which was a knife edge result, which we'll, we'll dig into a little bit. And then also the uh, the kind of midterm elections in Mexico we've got to cover, um, which will be a whole range of, of legislative and gubernatorial and local elections to, to cover in that one. Um, so, yeah, but how, how, first of all, how, how are you guys doing? How are you in Manchester, Chris? Um, well, it's uh, nice and sunny here still, um, and I'm going on a holiday in a couple of days, so I'm looking forward to getting away from things. And, and yeah, how was your holiday, Andres? Missed you last week. It was, it was amazing. I missed you guys too, but I have to say that the sun in the Caribbean was also a pretty nice, thing, <laughs> a pretty nice activity to be yeah. engaged with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how are you doing, Jonathan? Yeah, no, it's pretty good. I mean, it's just the tail, you're catching the tail end of marking. So, um, yeah, I've been buried in essays the whole week, but um, good news yep. next week, I am scheduled for vaccination. So that's for Hey! <laughs> Great news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they opened it up to um, to my age group, finally. Um, yeah, so we, we were all, we've all rushed and booked one. Um, where I was placing a queue rather like it's some kind of like uh, concert that I was trying to get tickets to. I was like <laughs> number 6,000 something at the start to watch it and then towards the 10 minutes gradually drop. But yeah, uh... very exciting. Okay, all right. So yeah, well, we'll um, tackle Peru first, I think. Um, this, this is a, a result which has been... It's been gaining some notoriety um, international media, um, perhaps I think because, because of its extreme closeness, um, but also because of the the rather large ideological um, gap between um, between the main candidates in this election. Mm. Um, so yeah, what what were the results? I know we could, we went through this in um, a, a month or so ago when the when the first round happened, and we, we did go through the um, the two the two main candidates who got through to the runoff. But yeah, just briefly catches up who they were and, and who came out on top. Um, sure, I would really recommend listeners who are interested in a deeper dive into Peru to go back to that episode where we covered the first round of presidential elections and went into detail about the background of Peru and the elections that and the candidates there. This is the this so so last Sunday, uh, June sixth, Peruvians headed to the polls to elect, um, you know, to cast their vote in the second round of presidential elections, and they had there were two two candidates, Pedro Castillo of Peru Libre, who is a kind of far left candidate, and Keiko Fujimori of Fuerza Popular, who is a, a far right candidate. Um, the, the the ideological distance is huge among them, or be, sorry, between them. Um, and and Pedro Castillo came out on top, but only by a difference of sixty thousand votes. Um, he got fifty point seventeen percent of votes versus forty nine point eighty three percent of votes by Keiko Fujimori. Keiko Fujimori is the daughter of um, Peru's dictator, Albert, uh, infamous Peru's uh, the, the infamous Peruvian dictator Alberto Fujimori. And she was also the president of, of, the, of the Peruvian Congress, 
um, during the, this past cycle, which has seen enormous political instability that has been played out largely in the relationship between the Congress and the presidency. So she's a central figure of Peruvian politics, obviously very polarizing because of her connections to, to, the, to the authoritarian past of the country, but also because of her, um, her role in Peruvian instability. In addition to that, she's now been charged with a crime related to the huge corruption scandal Odebrecht. Um, and there's an ongoing investigation and the prosecutor general of Peru has just recommended that she be put in preventive, preventative prison as the, as the investigation unfolds, as the case unfolds. Um, she, among her, you know, her ideological platform, I think became less policy oriented in the, like the second round and basically, in, but is largely kind of more free market, pro-market. Um, she, she's, she's also kind of, um, I guess she's also taking on a kind of anti-lockdown stance, despite the, the fact that Peru has been hit really terribly with COVID. And then on the other side, we have Pedro Castillo, who is, who is from a relatively small party, although a long-lived uh, party in Peru by Peruvian standards. It's, a Mar it's an openly Marxist party. And his, his party platform included, um, and, his, and his, his proposals included modifying the constitution, getting a new constitution, one that, is, um, one that protects social welfare um, and kind of lessens the protections around private property. Although it's not, it's vague. It doesn't have like a necessarily a, a clear kind of, kind of path towards socialism but it had a lot of socialist elements in it. He's also incredibly um, conservative in social terms. He comes from uh, kind of the Peruvian rural uh, highlands. And um, I guess, or he, he'd never had, uh, he, he's never held, a, a, um, he's, he's never held an elected position. So his was a really surprising rise. And, and partially kind of the product of the fragmentation that existed in the first round. Um, a, lot of, a lot of observers in Peru and in elsewhere, elsewhere in Latin America thought of him as being kind of a very, kind of a figure that would, em, would, that would emulate the kind of Chavez sort of style politics of the region. And in fact, he defended Chavez in, in several interviews. So a really odd election one with you know extremes, and now one that's being fought. Um, I mean, the, the results are all of the results are in. Both candidates have have decried and have tried to get certain amounts of ballots um, and annulled in the courts, um, alleging that there were either fraudulent that there was either fraud or other forms of irregularity that would make the ballots. Um, kind of, uh, that, that, couldn't, that, that would make the ballots uh, kind of not illegal, but that they couldn't be counted in for, for the kind of final presidential tally. Obviously this has a large degree of strategy behind it. So Keiko Fujimori has, um, she's, she's made the case that over 200,000 votes should not be counted towards the presidential tally. And those are just enough um, to flip the result in her favor. And Pedro Castillo responded 
with the same coin um, and has also asked for about, I think, 150,000 ballots to be to be annulled, obviously in districts that he knows, that his party knows, um, you know, uh, overwhelmingly favor um, his opponent. Yeah, because this was, I mean, this was one of the close, probably one of the closest national election results that I've ever seen, I think, that it was, was 50.2% to Pedro Castillo, and then um, 49.8% to Fujimori, this is ludicrously yeah. close. And you can see that any of these these kind of claims, you don't need very many votes at all to flip the outcome. And that this yeah. this could be potentially a successful and, strategy for either of and, them. And it's, it's a, basically like the third super close election on the trot featuring Fujimori as well, because she, she lost by only, um, I think there was about 2% of the votes in it in 2011 when she was up against a different, very left-wing opponent. Um, then last time she was up against a centre-right technocrat and only lost by, but actually an even narrower margin than this. <laughs> it was like zero point, it, it, she, she got, I think, 49.9% of the vote that year. Um, so it's, it proved, seems to keep on having these it seems to keep finding new ways to have very close run elections Fujimori just about losing um, which uh, it, particularly in this case given that it seemed like almost every other candidate would have beaten her like pretty decisively is kind of really telling yeah which brings me to like another question I mean I, who, where have the voters for the first round candidates gone in this because we had another, we had another reasonably well-scoring first-round candidate in Veronica Mendoza, but then most of the others that did reasonably well were either kind of centre or centre-right, largely. Um, where where have the votes for for both of the candidates come from in the in the second round? Because they did get very low shares of the vote um, in, in the first round. Mm. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good question and one that I'm afraid I'm I'm not entirely um i'm not entirely clear about where they've come from because they there's a pretty kind of there's a pretty kind of large geographical spread of votes for pedro castillo um i thought that you know although in the first round his were mainly concentrated in rural areas and still now he had an upper hand in rural areas he did get a lot of votes from from um cities um mm -hmm you saw a sort of the center-right in Peru um, gravitated towards Fujimori, despite their abhorrence, the, despite the fact that they're allergic to the, the Fujimoristas since the 90s. So you even had like, you know, Vargas Llosa, who was the presidential candidate against Fujimori's um, father in the 90s, um, saying that, you that people should vote for Keiko Fujimori, which was crazy. Yeah. So... I've seen some reporting actually that um, suggests, and I don't know how anecdotal this is, so it may just be entirely, uh, it, it may be a, a small phenomenon, but there was, there was some discussion of voters who are basically saying, look, they're both awful, but it's probably going to be easier to impeach Castillo if he steps out of line, because... Um, his party only has 37 seats. There's one other left-wing party that has five seats um, in Congress. 
Um, whereas there's a much larger right and Fujimori is kind of more experienced to kind of work in Congress. So therefore, it's better to go for the guy who, you know, can be gotten rid of more easily if problems start arising, <laughs> um, which I think is from which given given how many impeachments have happened in the recent past is, you know, logical and rational. Um but you know, suggest that um, perhaps we're in for another ride, wild ride of Peruvian political instability, which is not possibly the most fun uh, way that this could end. But yeah, yeah, I I, th- I think that this is the main issue in in Peruvian politics, and it's it's really quite an extraordinary case of institutions and we've already i've already said this in the podcast but it's really it's it's incredible to see this play out it's institutions reproducing cleavages and sometimes exacerbating them in such a way that they create instability so um in in my notes for today i said i put down that there's something shakespearean about peruvian politics because whoever wins this election knows that they're heading towards an extremely fragmented congress that also has large powers who's you know one of the most powerful congresses outside a parliamentary system and can easily impeach the sitting president the two-round system the runoff presidential system paired with um very low barriers for the formation of new political parties creates incredible dis- like fragmentation voters um so parties are basically there, there are many times kind of personal vehicles for charismatic politicians. And, and because in the first round, voters can vote non-strategically, you get this huge dispersion and voters don't really, they're not um, separating their congressional votes from the presidential ones. So there were 18 candidates in the first round of the Peruvian election, which is crazy. Um, mm. And they were able to garner a lot of support for very different parties in Congress. Yeah. So now the runoff system, the, the now the runoff vote is actually going to choose a very weak president. Um, yeah. That's kind of determined by the fact that there are these institutional rules to begin with. Yeah, and it's kind of telling in that that they've that therefore they've basically ended up with two of the most extreme candidates because being extreme also means being polarizing, having a kind of party base. There's a number of people in Peru who still particularly have very fond memories of the Fujimori regime. Um, you know, whatever you think of that, that's the case that those people exist. And obviously it's that's a base that exists for Fujimori and w- will come out for her elections. And Castillo seems to have won, I understand, by concentrating votes in kind of indigenous areas. Um, which is a kind of clear electoral cleavage. Um, so, yeah, the the fact of this, uh, um, whereas, which is a different thing to last time, for example, where the guy who ended up in second was basically because of strategic voting as the best person to beat Fujimori. But when she was looking a hell of a lot more powerful, um, well, hell of a lot more popular, I should say. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, you can see that the way that the electoral system is playing out is is clearly advantaging that that kind of politics in some ways. 
So given given the result, is there much chance of um, Fujimori going quietly from this? And and do you think she still continues to play an active role in Peruvian politics going forward? I think she has to play an active role for her for her own kind of existential kind of safety. I don't know how to put it, but the fact that she's involved in this huge corruption scandal that was the origin of the downfall of PPK, who was the president elected in 2016, who, who's, you know, he was ousted by Congress. And then after that, you know, the, the, the country was rocked by successive oustings of presidents. She's now been, she, there's now evidence that she also took bribes um, from the same company that gave bribes to this president. So now she needs to remain in politics in order to secure um, either presidential or congressional immunity. And I think that that's also one of the reasons why she's going to be, you know, she's going to fight this to the end and will probably, and if, you know, if she doesn't win, she'll probably um, try and, and find some other role in politics in order, in order to not be sent to jail like her, you know, um, like so many other politicians in Peru have. Yeah, yeah. And it's worth recognizing that in that as well, that one of her one of her most famous campaign promises was to pardon her own father. So it's not like, it's not like it, it, there is clearly a, there, there is clearly a, uh, a line of, you know, we've gone through this once before. And it's not just, it's very real for her in a way that perhaps it wouldn't be for other politicians. Yeah, I would just um, kind of wrap up with a reflection on runoff systems. Um, Runoff systems are usually thought to be, I don't know, to, to be able to, to, to afford like a degree of stability because they allow uh, presidential candidates to form larger coalitions, um, but they also have very odd results and it, it's not as clear cut. We've already, we've seen this with, you know, the Ecuadorian runoff um, for the presidential election produced a relatively like counterintuitive result. And now in Peru, it's also forced citizens to vote for what are clearly like globally unpopular candidates. Yeah, and that it's 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 quite wild. And and you know, in Mexico, the the runoff is spoken of um, frequently as a kind of remedy towards disenchantment and <laughs> polar polarization. But it's it's not the case actually. Um, it can cut both ways, definitely. Yeah, I, I think on on that, it's kind of runoffs usually work best, as most electoral systems do to some extent. To be fair, when there's some kind of bipolarity in the system, when you've got kind of a clear like left and a right, and therefore you know the the first round is essentially choosing between uh, which of the um, left and right candidates you're going to see sent to the second round and then it's kind of a clear kind of battle between them um, and you know that's traditionally what was the case in France and then of course 2002 happened and, yeah, and, and there's been a kind of similar destabilising there albeit you know not nearly as bad as this um, I think um, yeah and, and apart from that it's just going to Peru, I think, is wound up as kind of Latin America, one of Latin America's most difficult de democracies in the last 
um, last few years, and I suspect that that is going to continue to some extent. But um, hopefully, you know, it'll be interesting to watch as it moves forward. Um, what what comes out next? <laughs> Okay, um, shall we shall we turn, yeah, as you say, turn to a, a country which does not use the double ballot for its presidential elections um, and, and to talk about Mexico's big um, midterm bonanza of elections. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was the second set of elections that um, we're talking about with one of our members living in the country. Um, so yeah, um, I, I suspect Andres will be taking a decisive lead on this one. Um, and yeah, tell us to tell just start off basically telling us what was up for election at this time. Sure. Um, so as you said, this was a jumbo election. So on Sunday, June 6th, Mexicans went to the polls for midterm legislative elections at the federal level, but then there were also multiple local elections. So 30 local congresses were up for election, 15 governorships, um, county, what we what we call municipal presidents. So basically like county heads of counties and their um, local kind of mini assemblies, those were also up for, up for elections. So all but two states in Mexico held elections. Um, this is largely because of a constitutional reform in 2014 that, that, that made electoral calendars align, local electoral calendars align with the federal electoral calendar. It's a huge experiment um, and I'm sure Mexico is not the only country who's experimented with, with the timing of elections. And it has some really interesting effects. I think, um, I mean, the first effect is obviously that now there were um, about 20,000 offices that were up for election. So it was really massive. Um, and, and that, you know, one of the consequences of that and something that we'll talk about in more detail in, in, a, in a few moments is that um, participation turnout was really high um, for a midterm. So it has a kind of multiplying effect in terms of the interest that citizens show for elections. It also obviously also kind of nationalizes local issues, like local elections. So the di distinctions that voters make between local elections and federal kind of national issues and national figures gets a bit more blurry, I think. And, and I think that, that was, that's also kind of been the, the interpretation that most analysts have had of this of this set of, of, of elections. Yeah, which I would say was probably entirely expected. I mean, I think there's, there's a, 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 some decent research out there suggests that to show that if you have um, horizontal simultaneity and vertical simultaneity of elections, both of them have an effect of like nationalizing regional contests, whereas holding them separately, um, you end up preserving more of a kind of distinct regional um, or local feel to the election. Um, so yeah, it's um, interesting to have a nice like case study of it here <laughs> to, to observe that it's the first time it's happened. Um, on a side note, I'm curious as how given that in like a federal system, they've managed to align local and federal calendars rather than local and uh, state and federal even in this? Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good um, question. And it goes back to what federal means in Mexico. So Mexico is like the constitution is officially federal but in practice, it's actually a very unitary country in the mm -hmm. sense that the Federation has tons of powers over states. Um, so the Congress can enact 
a huge amount of laws that affect states directly. So, you know, I think federalism is actually, it's actually conceived in, in Mexican political science as a sliding scale, not something that's been set in stone. It's not like in the United States where federalism, in a sense, precedes or is at the base of the kind of um, national documents and arrangements of power. In Mexico, um, although ostensibly like in, 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 in paper, on paper, federal, um, the, the national government has had a lot of powers, especially during the 20th century. And it's only been about like 20 years that Mexico has experimented with more kind of decentral, decentralization. But then on certain, sub, on certain issues, there's a kind of regrouping of, there's a re-centralization. So when it came to elections, federalism in Mexico produced very, um, I guess, kind of undemocratic results because you had what were called like islands of authoritarianism, even though the country had nationally transitioned to democracy. So one of the, re one of the recipes or one of the means that some policymakers conceived of to break authoritarian localities or authoritarian islands was to make their elections coincide with federal elections mm. because that would increase the scrutiny over local elections. It has all sorts of um, kind of unwanted, unwanted kind of or un unplanned um, consequences, but that was the original kind of thrust as to why uh, local local calendars are now coincide with federal calendars. There's a um, concept, I believe, in the literature on comparative federalism, um, which is called organic federalism, which I think is actually quite similar to this, which like talks about countries where they are essentially, uh, they are federal in terms of their constitution, but where they have, um, but where they have become kind of, de facto unitary in some regards so but what's interesting about that i think with correspondence to mexico is that the countries that are usually described as organic federations are typically ones which have the same government in power for a very long time um so countries like malaysia for example were the same and and not not just the same government in power but also like and power at local level or um in europe Austria, which has had kind of constant grand coalitions at every level. Um, so uh, given that Mexico has been effectively a one-party state up until 2000, that chimes, <laughs> makes a lot of sense immediately <laughs> to me. That's a wonderful concept. Thank you. It's, it's, it's edifying um, meeting with you guys every week. I learn... <laughs> Tons. That's exactly, I think that that's a really important concept. It's, it's exactly what happened in Mexico. Um, what's interesting, though, is that federalism was thought of in the beginning of the democratic period as kind of the natural thing that a democracy should do. But then when they realized that that was actually allowing for authoritarian governors to remain in place, <laughs> the, the like uh, policymakers that were interested in increasing electoral competitiveness you know, they made an about turn and, you know, completely reversed course and yeah. said, no, it's actually national centralization that will create more democracy. So, yeah, you know, and that kind of for thinking of it as a natural state of being is probably something to do with Mexico's sheer size because we forget how big Mexico is. Um, yeah.
it's a, a really it's a really big complex country <laughs> yeah yeah it is and and it is it is and and it's it's kind of astounding sometimes that you could see that there you know what what does that what does a national dynamic look like in a country it's it's of 130 million inhabitants the 15th mm-hmm. economy in the world but one that is you know incredibly fragmented um incredibly unequal one of the most unequal countries yeah. in the world as and, well. and regionally unequal too you have like states at the north that are you know pretty rich in international terms and then states in the south which are incredibly poor right yeah exactly yeah. the north is totally globalized and kind of interlocked with Amer- with the united states economy um and the south is a completely it's like a different country in economic terms um mm. yeah totally different still very rural etc yeah so basically like the the just kind of to to kind of bring this discussion into the the 2021 election yes <laughs> the the the, <laughs> the interlocking of the electoral calendars meant that this was this, this set of elections was largely conceived as a referendum on the current government and given that the current government and politics in Mexico now all kind of revolves around one man uh, the president AMLO, his initials, the midterm was therefore then also largely about AMLO and, and his policies. And he has enormous discipline over his, you know, there's a lot of discipline in his party um, and he's, uh, it's, it's all centered around him. So yeah, I, th- I think it's, he was the most important figure in the election, even though he didn't run for office at all. Um, I guess another important thing is that we, we saw the formation of two large electoral coalitions in Mexico. At the federal level, Morena, which is the party of, of, of AMLO, formed a coalition with the Workers' Party and the Green Party. And then traditional, uh, the, the parties who had, who had traditionally been the, the three main parties in the political spectrum and were therefore um, electoral opponents came together and formed the other coalition. So it's really like a coalition of like a new party versus the old electoral system. Um, and that was, it, it's, it's really odd. It's, it's a very strange moment in Mexican politics, historically speaking. Um, before you used to have a single party that had like one, op- one form of opposition, then under democracy, there, there were traditionally three parties that were center-right, center-left, um, and center, something like that. Um, and now you have two electoral coalitions whose policy, who, who really don't have strong policy cleavages, partially because one coalition is made up of the center-right, the center-left, and the center. <laughs> and the other coalition is made up of a party that says it's kind of left-wing, but then does all sorts of things. And it's actually, it's actually more like a kind of catch-all party centered around um, uh, a very uh, extremely efficient, effective politician, extremely charismatic politician. Um, so, so that was, and, and this, this division of the two coalitions worked at the, both at the legislative level across the country, but then also at the local level. So at the local level, you also had governors, you know, know, candidates who were running for either of these two coalitions. That wasn't the case in every state, 
but in many states that that did happen that there was basically like two large coalitions that were formed at the local yeah um one i guess one final headline i guess is that morena and its coalition partners were the overall winners of the election they they won a majority in congress although they it, it was a majority that was not as large as the one that they won in 2018 um and they also won 12 out of 15 govern, uh, governorships. They actually won 11, but there's a 12th one that that where the candidate wasn't put up by Morena, but was put up by the Green Party and the Workers' Party. And he'll technically be an ally of the president. So we can say 12 governorships out of 15 that were um, that were in play, plus a simple majority in Congress. However, I mean, it's worth noting that the, that the that the Morena coalition fell below the high watermark of 2018, where they had a super, where they got a super majority in Congress, and what this means is that AMLO will have to be a president in a moment of pluralism, of political pluralism in Mexican institutions, something that he hasn't had to do over the last three years, and it's a bit of a mystery how he'll react. Although most people, I mean kind of initial kind of reactions are that he'll probably, you know, he's not a president who likes political pluralism and he'll probably not do very well in the context of negotiation with, 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 with political parties that he's vilified and that he's built his career on based on their vilification. So he'll have to, but you know, he's, he's not one to, um, you know, to embrace contradiction after all, he is, um, he's embraced the icky Green Party. And I say icky because they are really, um, they're really unsavory. I don't know what other adjectives to use with this Green Party. They're decidedly not green to begin with because they support like fossil fuels. And <laughs> in Mexico, they also supported the death penalty famously. Um, the death penalty for kidnappers, although not for murderers, which was weird. Um, they also supported the gov government, like they also supported an initiative where the government would pay for medicines. Um, and one of the leaders of the Green Party owns a huge um, like pharmaceutical company. So he was actually looking to get like um, yeah. a big buyout by the government. Uh, am I right in thinking that there's been allegations of connections to organized crime amongst the Green Party as well? Or am I just slandering them? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I so, so there have been these cases where, where, where members of the Green Party were found with, um, with piles of cash, but it's not clear if it was organized crime or if it was just like vote, vote buying and buying off like senators. But they're like, these are like the, the most unsavory of all like the parties in the political spectrum. Um, the Green Party, I think, you know, it's worth talking about them, but I think we, 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 we might want to actually reserve uh talk about the green party for when we talk about what what the result of the election means um so despite being like the global winner morena also suffered um local losses and and very interesting local losses actually because it lost some it lost um uh nine or ten of the of the 16 mexico mexico city boroughs which had been the traditional heartland of the left and of Morena. So in there, so it's lost some of its kind of more traditional constituents, um, Morena. 
uh, and it also lost, uh, you know, it, it also didn't win in some, you know, some states that were, were, were people expected it um, Morning to do really well. So some interesting local losses, but overall the global winner, I'd say. So in, in kind of classic ballot box fashion, we should probably, before we get to the results, start by asking about the um, the electoral system and the constitutional setup here. Um, so yeah, for the, for the big um, congressional elections, um, what, what's, the, what's the electoral system doing here? Yeah, so Mexico has a mixed system of first-past-the-post and proportional representation for federal Congress. So, um, and, and obviously, you know, first-past-the-post presidency, right? So 300 of the 500 seats in Congress are, are won via first-past-the-post. 300 electoral districts of roughly the same um, population size. And then 200 seats are reserved for a closed list proportional uh, representation system. So Mexico, along with Bolivia and Venezuela, are the only countries in Latin America that do not use a pure PR system to elect Congress, which is, which is interesting. Um, and another interesting fact is that in Mexico, we use the same ballot to elect both the first past the post and the PR. So you basically cross out a party logo or a candidate name. And the candidate is obviously the first past the post candidate that's on the ballot. But then you that vote will also go towards the tally of the PR vote. In coalitions, you, you can vote for all of the parties that are part of the coalition, some of the parties that are part of the coalition, or just one of the parties that are part of the coalition. And, and votes for the PR, for, for PR seats are distributed according to individual parties, not to the coalitions that's formed. So running in, as a coalition becomes this really kind of huge kind of menu of strategies because you can, you know, you can ask for the for for people to vote for all three parties in the coalition or just your own party in the coalition and that then has a big different that then has then has like big consequences when it comes to actually um how you know who who gets the congressional seat well the this mixed system has also filtered down into the local level so local congresses also have a mix of first past the post and pr but the proportion of first past the post versus PR varies according to each Mexican state. So the, the state with the highest proportion of PR is Jalisco and it has 49% of its seats made up of PR and the state with the least uh, percentage of PR is Baja California with only 24% of its seats listed as PR. Traditionally in Mexico, the most important candidates have gone, uh, have, have, are, 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 are put into the closed list PR system and they're ranked high up in that in that list. Um, so, like the most, the, the the politicians who've been around the longest tend to end up on that list. What that creates, the closed list system, and the fact that the it's the same ballot for both, creates a system whereby the party is really powerful in Mexico. So, party leaders um, can actually discipline their the their their parliamentarians by then not putting them high up in a closed list system um so that's that's one of the consequences there are other consequences but i think that that's one of the most interesting ones 
So yeah, so we've we've obviously gone over um, the broad results for the coalitions, but how have the kind of um, how have the individual parties done in this election? Was there any any kind of sort of unexpected or surprising results? And obviously, there's also the work. There were a few parties which have competed outside of these two big alliances as well. So I'd be kind of particularly interested to find out how they've done. Yeah. Um... So the parties that were not part of the, these coalitions. So first of all, these coalitions were not total coalitions, which means that in some districts, um, these two coalitions didn't work. It weren't, weren't, they didn't kind of, um, they, they didn't compete as coalitions, but that is largely a product of strategy because by not forming a complete coalition in every district, you can actually increase the number of vote of, of seats that you get in Congress through PR, because there's a there's a there's an additional kind of rule in the Mexican Constitution which limits the number the percentage of of PR seats that you can get as a as a as a coalition or as a single force, and it's called the rule of of over representation, and there's a cap at eight percent. So by not running all of your candidates in coalition, you actually increase your your relative. Um, strength. But there's also a fair bit of strategizing in that you can send like a relatively unpopular candidate in a certain district that will then do like a very negative campaign against um, your, a, a rival. And then you actually kind of clear the way for a, a, a candidate who is who who is from another party. So that, that happens a lot, which is why these coalitions were not complete. The parties that were that didn't form coalition at all was one called um, Citizens Movement, Movimiento Ciudadano, and they kind of carved out this kind of like true left ground, kind of very, I guess they were kind of socially progressive, allied with like certain um, kind of uh, people on and like uh, organized civil society, some academics, but then they also had a very popular candidate in the Northeast who ended up winning the governorship. Um, I don't think, I mean, this guy, he's Samuel Garcia. He married he married a social media influencer who was made famous because she does like unboxings and stuff. Um, but she's hugely popular in the state, and that really helped him. Um, he's not, you know, so so their most their most successful candidate strayed from the general brand that that social that that citizens movement was trying to. Um, kind of put forth, right? So that was one party that didn't form part of the coalition. And the others that didn't form part of the coalition were new parties. And there's a rule in the Mexican constitution where new parties can't form part of the coalition in their in the first election that they that they participate in. And the, these parties, one was, they're, they're kind of like, they're, they're satellite parties in many ways. Um, one is a party that's linked to the teachers union, which is a very important political actor in Mexico. So kind of corporatist strategy. Another was called uh, Progressive Social Network. And they were kind of like uh, a fringe party that had very kind of scandalous advertisements of semi-naked women um, and uh, other kind of strange uh, candidates. And, and, you know, and then there was an evangelical party called BES. Um, who had already, they had already, ex they, they existed beforehand, but they lost 
their their um they lost their reg their registry as a as a party because they didn't get over the three percent threshold that you need to to remain as a legally as a constituted party in Mexico. Um, and I guess surprisingly, I think I guess the biggest surprise was that the that the PAN, the traditional center right wing party, did really well, um, especially compared to two thousand eighteen. They got around. They got around um, 19% of the vote, but this will translate into around 110 congressional seats. The PRI also got around, you know, a bit less, around 18% of the vote, but they'll only get around 67 seats. So the, pre, the PRI did terribly, the, P, the, the PAN did really well. And then the Green Party, which is this really icky party, they only got about 6% of the vote, but they'll have around 43 um, congressional seats. So the Green Party has actually showed the country to be the most effective electoral machine out there. Um, you can compare that to the 7% that Citizen Movement got and, and the fact that Citizens Movement will only get about 24 um, congressional seats. So, yeah. So uh, I guess those were kind of the surprising, I guess the surprising results, yeah. Hmm. So um, where does this leave Congress overall, would you say? Yeah, that's, that, this is the main, this is, I guess, the main story coming out of this election. So Morena got uh, around 200 seats, 197 seats. And, and, and I'm saying around because um, the official count hasn't been so the official apportionment of the congressional seats haven't ha hasn't happened, um, but it's it's you know these these projections are, are very close to what what will actually be the case. So Marina got 197 seats. They lost about 60 seats compared to 2018, where they got 256. Which means the which means they mm -hmm. no longer have a single party majority for people not keeping track. <laughs> right. Morena no longer has a single party majority, thank you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Nor do, nor do they have a coalitional supermajority. They only have a majority with their coalition and they will now need the Green Party. The Green Party has grown from having I think it was around 10 seats to having won 44 seats, 43 or 44 seats. Some of the some of the members of the Green Party who won will then they'll transfer to Morena. There were they are um, what are called watermelon candidates because they're green on the outside but red on the inside because <laughs> they were put there to circumvent other rules such as gender parity rules, right? So they were put up as as the that's that's one of the one of the reasons why they have so many candidates. But the another reason is that they they did extremely well. So Morena will now need to rely on the unreliable Green Party. And they're unreliable because they've been in coalition with the PAN and they've been in coalition with the PRI. They're basically mercenaries of electoral politics. And what this means is that in order for AMLO to get his budget passed, he will need to make sure that the Green Party gives him most of their votes. There's an enormous party discipline within the Mexican Congress. So he needs to negotiate with party leaders. And the Green Party is, it excels at what we, in Spanish, we say, 
selling your love at a high price. <laughs> so they excel at this and they're going to extract enormous concessions. I mean, it's, it's really bad news for Mexico that this mercenary party is the kingmaker um, at least, or at, you know, is, is the kind of key, keystone when it comes to passing the budget and passing simple mm-hmm. legislative acts. Um, it's really bad. And, you know, they've, despite all of the kind of corruption scandals that have happened in Mexico and the multiple investigations that are taking place, especially of like ex-presidents and people related to the PRI, basically no members of the Green Party are under investigation. And this is obviously, you know, this, you, you don't need, there, there, you don't need a lot of logic to put together why that's happened, right? Um, mm. So, yeah, we're going to see some very nasty deals between Morena and the Green Party um, happening very openly. And the Green Party will also probably kind of start creating a kind of discourse where it's not as reliable, not as, you know, doesn't trust Morena completely, might want to vote some things with the PRI and the PAN um, to increase the, 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 the kind of um, the benefits that they'll get from their alliance with, with Morena. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So are there kind of clear geographical or um, sociological divides into who's supporting the two coalitions and I suppose the parties within them as well? Yeah, this is, I mean, uh, there's some initial analysis already um, that's really interesting. And so there seems to have been a shift in, for example, schooling. So, uh, I mean, there's an emerging hypothesis that there is kind of a very clear class division. And I say emerging and I say hypothesis because I think we need more data to be able to, um, and we need more analysis to be able to kind of say that this is more than just kind of a tentative hypothesis, but, but, but there's some really interesting data to support this. So for example, in 2018, um, at the level of electoral sections, which is a geographical unit that is below districts. So it's not at the individual level, um, but it's, it's, it's a fairly small geographic unit. Sections that had higher average schooling went for Morena um, and also went for kind of um, non-Morena parties, right? And sections that had lower, um, low, a lower percent, lower, lower average schooling did go preponderantly for Morena, but you still had a, a large proportion of sections that, that, that went for non-Morena. Now in 2021, you have a very strong um, correlation, at least in Mexico City, of the average schooling per section and the, and the, the main coalition that was voted for. And so lower school sections with lower average school school years voted for Morena overwhelmingly. And so schooling, I mean, is, is also kind of, it's a proxy for, um, for wealth, right? Um, and it, well, not only, it's not a perfect proxy, but it, 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 it seems to be like a proxy, right? For that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. For those from, from Western Europe, like that's not necessarily the case, but like I can see that being the case in Mexico. Yes. 
Yeah. Mexico City, furthermore, I mean, the, the boroughs that Morena lost, the, the, the 11 boroughs that Morena, the nine boroughs that Morena lost, sorry, are all on the western side of Mexico City, which is also the side, the richest part of the city. And so there's a clear division right down the middle, split in the middle. And the east was won by Morena, like the eastern boroughs were won by Morena. Um, and so some people were starting to talk about the the kind of the new the new Berlin Wall, or there were even some kind of references that were you know uh, very lacking in taste about you know that this division, but it does seem to show a kind of I don't want to say class division as much as a socioeconomic division, and so mm. poorer sectors of society seem to have been voting for Morena, but but I think it's important to understand what it means to be at the lower end of uh, wealth in Mexico. And it's hard to associate it with a single class, partially because Mexico is such a neoliberal kind of economy. So it's really the precariat, right? It's, it's about people who, have, who, who don't necessarily work in well-established industries because those people, you know, like workers as one would traditionally conceive them who have like a nine to five job in a factory are not the poorest people in Mexico, right? Mm -hmm. They actually do pretty well um, compared to the rest of the country. So people who, who you know, so like um, those on the lower end of the wealth distribution have a, a very precarious life, very little government benefits, destructured, a lot of times kind of they, they work in the informal sector. So 50% of the Mexican workforce works in the informal sector. 10% of the Mexican population, and that's probably around 15% of the Mexican workforce lives and works in the United States, which is also a form of informal economy, right? And they produce much more than 15% of the Mexican GDP. It's closer to probably like... 30%, right? So, so the Morena's socioeconomic basis is, um, are, are people who, who, who live very, you know, who, who, who are unsheltered from, from kind of like a really terrible economy and a very unfair economy. Mm. Um, Morena has increased so, like direct cash transfers um, and it has a plethora of like, social programs that, that benefit mostly um, impoverished uh, Mexicans. I think that that's, that's definitely true. There's a debate around what the trade-off of, Morena, of Morena's um, social benefits have been. And a lot of people suggest that they're not actually investing in like long-term developmental solutions. And also that this has been mixed with enormous government austerity. So the, the, so the government has actually, although it's increased direct cash transfers, has actually decreased governmental services, which in many ways are more, can be as important in some mm. respects. Yeah. yeah. So I'd say that that's, this is the kind of emerging sociological trend. Geographically, Morena did well across the country. And that's also, I think, a big part of the, the, this, these midterm stories. The left, so Mexico has been traditionally, has been divided since like this, the 80s when 
Mexico started to kind of form part of the global economy between the North that's connected to the American economy and the South, which is more rural um, and has less connections to the global economy. Although it does have important ones through tourism, the South of Mexico. The South was traditionally won by either the left or the center, the PRI or the PRD. And the North was traditionally won by either the center right, the PAN or the center, the PRI. So this was obviously a system that benefited the center, the, the most centrist party, which was the PRI. No surprise, they governed the country for so long that they could, you know, kind of engineer conditions whereby they were the net benefactors of like a, a kind of a split, um, a geographical split, right? Now Morena is winning the North as well as the South. So, and, and you can, and is that because, that is partially because of, the fact that Morena has been able to use uh, its incumbency to expand its territorial um, logistical operations. It's also a product of Morena's transformation in its discourse and its policy agenda. So Morena has, for example, completely abandoned some of the traditional left-wing um, policy agenda, i.e. sustainability. I mean, Morena, Lopez Obrador's um, environmental agenda is non-existent. He supports fossil fuels and is building a huge refinery in the middle of a mangrove. Um, you know, he's unashamedly pro-fossil fuels and, and um, you know, oil and stuff and, and has, does, has, has cut back funding for um, natural reserves and the Ministry of the Environment by over 35%, basically left it in, in tatters. Um, he is, his party is decidedly a, indifferent to, or maybe even against pro-choice agenda. So one of his coalition partners aired, a, aired, aired an advertisement on Mexican television, on Mexican radio, saying that they were pro-life and that they would never vote in, uh, for abortion, right? And so this is Morena, <laughs> ostensibly left-wing. Um, and he's also remained relatively quiet and has not advanced the LGBTQI plus agenda. Um, there's still a lot of, a lot of you know, room for growth in Mexico in that term. He's also said that feminists, feminism is, an, is a foreign ideology that has nothing to do with Mexico. Um, so, you know, yeah. this shift in discourse is also probably part of the reason why he's also viable, his party is viable in the traditional center-right or center-center part of the country, so in the north. And you see that because he won Baja California, Baja California Sur, Sonora, and Sinaloa, which are the north, the northwest of the country. Um, so the change, so his, the, the kind of catch-all nature of Morena is also kind of coincides with, with its expansion throughout the country. Yeah. And, and that's a uh, that's a dimension that we've kind of been talking about in like uh, lots of times as well. Like, there's a whole thing going on in Britain now about the kind of discussion about kind of people who are kind of economically left wing and kind of socially conservative and uh, the ways in which they've been won by the Conservative Party, which obviously is a very different type of party, but coming in an incredibly different environment and all that kind of stuff. But um it, it, that there's obviously something happening there in terms of like the global economy and like, there's similar things going on 
all over. I, I kind of wonder, therefore, like we've also talked a little bit before about kind of like the extractionist versus the anti-extractionist left in Latin America. And is that part of how um, the citizens' movement has risen up? Are they, are they kind of representing a kind of more liberal intelligentsia kind of part of the left, like embracing kind of more socially progressive issues? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that that's that's right. The, the 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 citizens movement has taken on a lot of kind of disaffected kind of intelligentsia from the left, although a lot of the like the left wing intelligentsia remains very loyal to Morena. Mm. Um, and I mean, it's very sad what's happening in Mexico in terms of the environment. But and and I mean, this is. A, I guess there's a kind of general case and a specific case. The general case is that this election did not have strong policy cleavages. It just didn't. And, and, and policy mm. took a second, you know, it, it, it took, it was, it was clearly, you know, a far background. Most of the debate in this election was around corruption and the continuation, like support for Lopez Obrador. And what he's kind of, he's created this discourse where a vote for his party means a vote for like a transformation in, in Mexico's public life. One that doesn't, you know, one that's not, there's not evidence that he's, I mean, there is evidence that he's transforming some parts of the Mexican political system, just not in the way that he says he is. So he says he's virulently anti-corruption, but then for example, the candidate that his party supported in San Luis Potosí called Gallardo, has these accusations of having, you know, um, meddled with organized crime, right? Mm. Um, he says he's he's very anti-corruption, but he's he's being supported by the Green Party and he's embraced the Green Party, um, etc. Right? So he's a, he's selectively anti-corruption. Let's say. Anyway, the there aren't strong there weren't strong policy cleavages. There was a cleavage around. I think there was a very clear discourse around the dangers of the concentration of power. And so a lot of, you know, kind of more, probably more educated Mexicans were weary of what sort of constitutional amendments could happen in the second term of Lopez Obrador. And so, and citizens movement benefited from that weariness. Um, you know, people who are disaffected of the PR, who didn't want to vote for the PRI, they've been, you know, um, but then they were also wary of what would happen if Morena had a supermajority. The, in terms of like environment and sustainability, that really fell off the map, and it wasn't it wasn't discussed very clearly in the in the public sphere. Um, and it's it's a real shame because you know the climate crisis is affecting Mexico, and you know Mexico is one of these super diverse countries, along with like Indonesia, Brazil and a handful of other countries in the world. It has all these, you know, incredibly rich biodiversity and very unique um, uh, environmental systems that are, all, that are, you know, they're on the verge of collapse, a lot of them. A lot of what AMLO's, one of the major uh, issues that, that AMLO supports is building a train through relatively delicate environment in order to boost tourism. Um, and the the you know the increased extraction of oil um, and the building of a refinery. So 
Yeah, um, that I think that I think that so so in one in one sense, this election is kind of like democracy is doing what it's supposed to do, i.e., no absolute winners here. Two thousand eighteen was a bit of a blip, in the sense that Mexico had had since two thousand very fragmented, you know, in in very fragmented political system. Not not very fragmented, but you know, there was a clear kind of balance of power in three parties. And so presidents had to negotiate in order to get big reforms through, and they did, and governors had to negotiate with their local congresses. And then 2018 sees this like massive wave of pro-AMLO support, and you get a president and a party who doesn't need to negotiate, who doesn't require political pluralism, mm. and, and has a very anti-pluralist agenda and, and discourse. 2021 seems like a reversal and like, okay, Mexicans actually like political pluralism. Yay for elections. Um, no absolute winners. Checks and balances. Institutions doing what they're supposed to do, right? Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But but still a, a popular president broadly winning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A, a very popular president. He's a very popular president. But I think, you know, maybe you know, he's not popular enough to kind of overwhelm um, yes. and get the supermajority. The other story is like one where there were no policies that were being talked about and Mexicans are increasingly polarized. And by polarized, I mean on two dimensions or basic, well, uh, yeah, kind of, yeah, polarized in the sense that um, their identities so they're, they're, they're increasingly being sorted. So they're pro-AMLO pro and therefore they'll accept all, basically any policy, even policies that are against their, like what the, 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 the values that they espouse <laughs> um, or anti-AMLO. And, and, you know, they're sorted by that. And then another dimension, which is effective polarization, where there's real hatred towards the other side of the of the aisle um and and you can see this in like groups of friends obviously on social media social media is not the world it's a bad it's a bad indicator of how polarized people are but um you know that that's also and 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 then in that polarization policies kind of um have fallen off have not been part of the uh like you know analysis and 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 the public thing, and that that was I think that that's that's kind of the sad part of this this election. One further question: um, What do you think next for Morena? Because this is a party. Because Mexico um, still only has you can only do one term as president, right? So this is a party that's powered by the personality of one man. Like, is there an indication of like how Morena? manages like a, a world without AMLO as it were like is there a world without AMLO for Marina? <laughs> that's a that's a that's a great question hmm. I would go back to when um Morena had to elect its own leader its leadership election and so Morena doesn't do elections they do surveys they do polls of like their militants and stuff and then based on that, they decide who becomes the president of the party or who becomes a candidate. And during this contest, 
the 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 within there was a huge division within the party. It's a very this party Morena lacks institutionalization, and in large degree because it is the party of AMLO, right? Um, and so there was huge infighting, and AMLO had AMLO had stepped back and that had allowed a certain degree of infighting to take place, which is probably which is probably a wise thing to do because the party needs needed to kind of like you know. Um, be able to resolve its own disputes, but he eventually had to step in and and give like the runner up, um, you know, he had to give him a concession and then the winner of the contest became the, the party. This boded very poorly for the party without AMLO. So kind of the, the internal structure, the internal working of the party will suffer without AMLO as president although he can probably still be kind of like the moral leader of the party somehow in the background. Can, you know, AMLO will, one of the things to note is that AMLO, like other presidents before him, this is not exclusive of him, meddled in the election. Not that he committed fraud, no, not at all, nor that he tried to change rules to favor his party, but he broke the very strict Mexican rules around campaigning, whereby public officials cannot um, publicly campaign in favor or against candidates. He openly campaigned in favor of his, of his party and openly attacked candidates with, you know, from the pulpit of the presidency. Um, something that other presidents have also done. And, and other presidents have maybe even been more They've even committed more egregious kind of faults in that they've, um, Peña Nieto, for example, you know, he, he, he had all these social benefits that, you know, coincidentally went out right before his, <laughs> right before an election, right? So what I'm trying to say here is AMLO will probably also influence the 2024 election. And so he'll do all he can to make sure that there's, a, that, that there's a candidate who wins, that the candidate for Morena wins. Um, the problem is, who, how will that candidate be selected when the party is fractured? Um, so I think that there, I think AMLO still has the capacity to influence the next election, and therefore, most likely, Morena will win the 2024 presidential election. And then after that, there could be a you know real collapse of the party and a, and a further fragmentation. Um, I don't see him or his party institutionalizing because that that's really painful. It takes a lot of resources and patience. Um, and I, I don't see that. I don't see that happening. Yeah, it makes me think of a kind of extreme version of, for example, the Workers' Party in Brazil without like Sans Lula, like the problems that the. It, it that's a in many ways a much more institutionalized party, but it's still so identified with Lula that it it like it was able to win an election when Lula basically just turned up and said, "Here's Dilma Rousseff, um, I support her, <laughs> go go vote for her." <laughs> like, but like it becomes it becomes incredibly weak the moment he's taken off the stage, and now he's back again. The party's back to life again. I did I did just want to do a little shout out to the Mexican Electoral Institute, um, which is uh, 
which is really a, a wonderful institution. It, it, it's, it had a really tough job. It had the largest voters role in the country's history, a voters role of like 93 million and, you know, historic turnout with over 50% of people, of citizens showing up. Um, they do such a wonderful job. It's really quite incredible. Um, not only because I work there, but also because <laughs> they have no, it's a really, it's, it's, it's fast. It's really wonderful. Like, and you see how important institutions are and how, you know, it, it, it they're, they're, they're costly and it takes a long time to have professionalized kind of bureaucracy, but it's worth it. It's really worth it. And so there and, were no yeah. accusations of fraud in a country where that could happen, right. At any time. Yeah. Um, and then people, you know, elections, don't become the cent like the organization of elections are not part of a larger political dispute. Yeah. The disputes are actually happening through cha- getting channeled through elections. Yeah, and I I think that's a really remarkable thing in what is still a fairly young democracy in many ways. Um, it's only you know twenty one years since Mexico elected its first non PRI non PRI president. Um, and it's um, and it's a um, an incredibly complex and big country as well. So yes, I fully back you in that. <laughs> okay, all right. So we will see you. There's quite a cluster of elections coming up um, in about a week's time. So I think you'll you'll probably see us again for for, for quite a bit of coverage um, before too long. Yes. Um, yeah. Until then. Um, I hope everyone has a has a great week and please do rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.